Hey ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Think It Ain't Illegal Yet. I'm your host, St. Clinton. On this show, we'll be playing some poetry, spoken words, and other things about political and social issues going on around the world, both past, present, and future, which will hopefully make you think. Who are you? Yeah. You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And why don't you now know what your name was then? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? What was your name? It couldn't have been Smith or Jones or Bunch or Powell. That wasn't your name. They don't have those kind of names where you and I came from. No. Where did it go? Where did you lose it? Who took it? And how did he take it? What tongue did you speak? How did the man take your tongue? Where is your history? How did the man wipe out your history? How did the man, what did the man do to make you as dumb as you are right now? Go. 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 Go.
Endeavour's onboard computers have primary control of all the vehicle's critical functions. T-minus 18 seconds. 15. Sound suppression water system has been activated, protecting Endeavour and the launch pad from acoustical energy. We're go for main engine start. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one. Booster ignition and liftoff of Endeavour. Completing Kibo and fulfilling Japan's hope for an out-of-this-world space laboratory. Houston Endeavour roll program. Roger roll Endeavour. This is Mission Control Houston. Endeavour's roll maneuver is being completed. It's now going into a heads-down position on track for its flight to the International Space Station. Flying at 400 miles per hour. hour. Endeavour, two-engine Maroon. Two-engine Maroon. Roman on L1, we'd like high-load duct heater to Alpha Slant Bravo. Complete. Endeavour, negative return. Negative return. Press the ATO, select their Gosa. Single engine off the three. Press Tamika. Endeavour, single engine press 104. Single engine press 104. According to Obama's plan, responsibility will go to private companies, which are expected to come up with cheaper ways to ferry astronauts to low Earth orbit. They know that they have a big step to take when they, if they're thinking about putting humans into space, and that's going to take a, you know, the next phase of their development. No one can say for sure when the private American companies will come up with a new spaceship. For years to come, it will be the Russian Soyuz that's going to be the only means for people to reach the International Space Station. Ten seconds. Station, never the big loop. We have physical separation. Separation confirmed. Endeavour and the International Space Station now backing away from each other. The two spacecraft passing 218 miles above the Indian Ocean. Endeavour continuing to back away from the International Space Station as the traditional bells are being rung on board the complex, signaling the departure of the crew. 30 seconds to touchdown. The landing gear is down and locked. Doug Hurley now deploying the direct chute. And Commander Mark Polanski rotating the nose gear down to the deck. Nose gear touchdown. Endeavour rolling out on runway 15 at Kennedy Space Center, wrapping up a 6.5 million mile mission. The 71st landing of the Kennedy Space Center, Endeavour has completed its 23rd mission and the 127th Space Shuttle mission. It was the 29th to the International Space Station. 
choices more terrifying than the one Mr. Bush has left us with tonight. We have either a president who is too dishonest to restrain himself from invoking World War III about Iran at least six weeks after he had to have known that the analogy would be fantastic, irresponsible hyperbole, or we have a president too transcendently stupid not to have asked at what now appears to have been a series of opportunities to do so, whether the fairy tales he either created or was fed were still even remotely plausible. The pathological presidential liar or an idiot in chief. It is the nightmare scenario of political science fiction, a critical juncture in our history, and contained in either answer, a president manifestly unfit to serve, and behind him in the vice presidency, an unapologetic warmonger who has long been seeing a world visible only to himself. After Ms. Perino's announcement at the White House last night that the timeline is inescapable and clear now. In August, this president was told by his hand-picked major domo of intelligence, Mike McConnell, a flinty, high-strong-looking, worrying warrior who will always see more clouds than silver linings, that what everybody thought about Iran might, in essence, be crap. Yet on October 17th, the president said of Iran and its president, Ahmadinejad, I've told people that if you're interested in avoiding World War III, it seems like you ought to be interested in preventing them from have the knowledge to make a nuclear weapon. And as he said that, Mr. Bush knew that at bare minimum, there was a strong chance that his rhetoric was nothing more than words with which to scare the Iranians. Or was it, sir, to scare the Americans? Does Iran not really fit in the equation here? Have you just scribbled it into the fill-in-the-blank on the same template you used to scare us about Iraq? In August, any commander-in-chief still able-minded or uncorrupted or both, sir, would have invoked the quality the job most requires. Mental flexibility. A bright man or an honest man would have realized no later than the McConnell briefing that the only true danger about Iran was the damage that could be done by an unhinged, irrational, chicken little of a president shooting his mouth off, backed up only by his own hysteria and his own delusions of omniscience. Not Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Mr. Bush. The chicken little of presidents is the one, sir, that you see in the mirror. And the mind reels at the thought of a vice president fully briefed on the revised intel as long as two weeks ago, briefed on the fact that Iran abandoned its pursuit of this imminent threat four years ago. A vice president who never meant bothered to mention it to his boss. It is nearly forgotten today, but throughout much of Ronald Reagan's presidency, it was widely believed that he was little more than a front man for some never-viewed behind-the-scenes string puller. Today, as evidenced by this latest remarkable historical malfeasance, it is inescapable that Dick Cheney is either this president's evil ventriloquist, or he thinks he is. What servant of any of the 42 previous presidents could possibly withhold information of this urgency and this gravity and wind up back at his desk the next morning instead of winding up before a congressional investigation or a criminal one? Mr. Bush, if you can still hear us, if you did not previously agree to this scenario in which Dick Cheney is the actual detective and you're the Remington Steel, you must disenthrall yourself. Mr. Cheney has usurped your constitutional powers, cut you out of the information loop, and led you down the path to an unprecedented presidency in which the facts have become optional. 
The intel is valued less than the hunch, and the assistant runs the store. The problem is, sir, your assistance is robbing you and your country blind. Not merely in monetary terms, Mr. Bush, but more importantly, robbing you of the traditions and righteousness for which we have stood at great risk for centuries. Honesty, law, moral force. Mr. Cheney has helped, sir, to make your administration into the kind our ancestors saw in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s, the ones that abandoned reconstruction and sent this country marching backwards into the pit of American apartheid. Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland. Presidents who will be remembered only in a blur of failure, Mr. Bush. Presidents who will be remembered as functions only of those who opposed them, the opponents who history proved right. Grant. Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Bush. That's it. Obama is no longer president. You might cry, you might be happy, but let's think for a moment about the environmental legacy he leaves behind. At home, Obama worked to lower emissions of greenhouse gases from cars and power plants, his boosted renewable energy, and set new records for protected public land. On the international level, he has spearheaded climate deals like the Paris Accord, an agreement among nearly 200 nations to lower carbon emissions in the fight against climate change. The new president of the United States, Donald Trump, has vowed to dismantle all back. For the next four years, when it comes to climate policy, the place to watch isn't the White House, it's the courtroom. The courts is really the area of last resort for a lot of environmental groups and a lot of states that have supported the Obama administration agenda. A lot of environmental groups are gearing up to fight in any anti-climate action by the Trump administration already. People are fully staffed up and fully ready to hit the green go button on litigation. Trump's record on the environment already isn't great. I mean, he said climate change is a hoax, and his actions so far don't bode well. He nominated ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. His pick for the head of the Environmental Protection Agency is Scott Pruitt, a man who sued the EPA over environmental regulations. His transition team also sent a questionnaire to the Department of Energy asking for the names of employees who worked on climate policy. That's really intimidating, even if Trump's team later said the questionnaire was not authorized. Most importantly, Trump vowed to scrap the Clean Power Plan, Obama's signature policy to reduce CO2 emissions. But rolling back the CPP won't be that easy. In fact, a lot of people are already trying. Two dozen states and industry groups have sued the EPA, arguing that it overstepped its authority under the Clean Air Act. If Trump's EPA tries to halt that lawsuit before a ruling is reached, several other states have vowed to sue the administration. The EPA has to follow the Clean Air Act and regulate air pollutants in the US. And in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled that greenhouse gases like CO2 are air pollutants under that law. In 2009, the EPA determined that greenhouse gases like CO2 endanger people's health and welfare. If Trump's EPA declares that greenhouse gas emissions are dangerous to the public, environmental groups would sue and probably win because... I, I, you know, I think it would be really difficult at this stage to argue in a legally defensible manner that there is not endangerment given what we're seeing with the Greenland ice melt, Antarctica, the more frequent storms or more frequent severe storms, I should say precipitation, changes, drought, many, many of which have been connected to human responsibility for CO2 and other climate-related emissions. In short, global warming. The courts are likely to hear cases on a host of other environmental issues. 
If endangered species are unprotected under the Endangered Species Act, environmental groups could sue the government for inaction. If Trump decides to undo some of the national monuments named by Obama under the Antiquities Act, that could also wind up in the courts. How the courts will rule is difficult to predict. Trump will be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice, skewing the balance to the conservative side. Environmentalists also worry about some 100-plus judicial vacancies that Trump will be able to fill with his appointees. The Supreme Court will get a lot of attention, but the federal courts pose a much more immediate opportunity. A couple of openings are at the Second Circuit, which has ruled on water pollution before. Other openings are at the Ninth Circuit, which is important for endangered species cases. I think the Trump administration can do many damaging things, but ultimately the law is on our side, so we'll win cases if we have to bring them against these rollbacks. And we'll also find that they lose in the court of public opinion, because the public is in favor of these things, not against them. Thank you very much, Governor Keating and Mrs. Keating, Reverend Graham, to the families of those who have been lost and wounded, to the people of Oklahoma City who have endured so much, and the people of this wonderful state, to all of you who are here as our fellow Americans. I am honored to be here today to represent the American people, but I have to tell you that Hillary and I also come as parents, as husband and wife, as people who were your neighbors for some of the best years of our lives. Today our nation joins with you in grief. We mourn with you. We share your hope against hope that some may still survive. We thank all those who have worked so heroically to save lives and to solve this crime. Those here in Oklahoma and those who are all across this great land and many who left their own lives to come here to work hand in hand with you. We pledge to do all we can to help you heal the injured, to rebuild this city, and to bring to justice those who did this evil. This terrible sin took the lives of our American family, innocent children in that building only because their parents were trying to be good parents as well as good workers. Citizens in the building going about their daily business, and many there who served the rest of us, who worked to help the elderly and the disabled, who worked to support our farmers and our veterans, who worked to enforce our laws and to protect us. Let us say clearly, they served us well, and we are grateful. But for so many of you, they were also neighbors and friends. You saw them at church or the PTA meetings, at the civic clubs or the ballpark. You know them in ways that all the rest of America could not. And to all the members of the families here present who have suffered loss, though we share your grief, 
Your pain is unimaginable, and we know that. We cannot undo it. That is God's work. Our words seem small beside the loss you have endured, but I found a few I wanted to share today. I've received a lot of letters in these last terrible days. One stood out because it came from a young widow and a mother of three whose own husband was murdered with over 200 other Americans when Pan Am 103 was shot down. Here is what that woman said I should say to you today. The anger you feel is valid, but you must not allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The hurt you feel must not be allowed to turn into hate, but instead into the search for justice. The loss you feel must not paralyze your own lives. Instead, you must try to pay tribute to your loved ones by continuing to do all the things they left undone, thus ensuring they did not die in vain. Wise words from one who also knows. You have lost too much, but you have not lost everything. And you have certainly not lost America. For we will stand with you. For as many tomorrows as it takes. If ever we needed evidence of that, I could only recall the words of Governor and Mrs. Keating. If anybody thinks that Americans are mostly mean and selfish, they ought to come to Oklahoma. If anybody thinks Americans have lost the capacity for love and caring and courage, they ought to come to Oklahoma. To all my fellow Americans beyond this hall, I say, one thing we owe those who have sacrificed is the duty to purge ourselves of the dark forces which gave rise to this evil. They are forces that threaten our common peace, our freedom, our way of life. Let us teach our children that the God of comfort is also the God of righteousness. Those who trouble their own house will inherit the wind. Justice will prevail. Let us let our own children know that we will stand against the forces of fear. When there is talk of hatred, let us stand up and talk against it. When there is talk of violence, let us stand up and talk against it. In the face of death, let us 
on our life. As St. Paul admonished us, let us not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yesterday, Hillary and I had the privilege of speaking with some children of other federal employees, children like those who were lost here. And one little girl said something we will never forget. She said, we should all plant a tree in memory of the children. So this morning, before we got on the plane to come here at the White House, we planted that tree in honor of the children of Oklahoma. It was a dogwood with its wonderful spring flower and its deep, enduring roots. It embodies the lesson of the Psalms that the life of a good person is like a tree whose leaf does not wither. My fellow Americans, a tree takes a long time to grow, and wounds take a long time to heal. But we must begin. Those who are lost now belong to God. Someday we will be with them. But until that happens, their legacy must be our lives. Thank you all, and God bless you. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is St. Clinton here. Are you a poet or a spoken word artist? Would you like to have your tracks played here? And send it in an audio format to poetry at sanddunradio.com. Poetry at sanddunradio.com. And we'll add it into the rotation. Oh, yeah. We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here, the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. 
The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a Ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the Rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the Ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Gentlemen, I look at you and I think of the words of Stephen Spender's poem. You were men who in your, quote, lives fought for life and lift, left the vivid air signed with your honor. I think I know what you may be thinking right now, thinking we were just part of a bigger effort. Everyone was brave that day. Well, everyone was. You remember the story of Bill Millen of the 51st Highlanders? Forty years ago today, British troops were pinned down near a bridge waiting desperately for help. Suddenly they heard the sound of bagpipes, and some thought they were dreaming. Well, they weren't. They looked up and saw Bill Millen with his bagpipes leading the reinforcements and ignoring the smack of the bullets into the ground around him. Lord Lovett was with him, Lord Lovett of Scotland, who calmly announced when he got to the bridge, sorry, I'm a few minutes late, as if he'd been delayed by a traffic jam when in truth he'd just come from the bloody fighting on Sword Beach, which he and his men had just taken. There was the impossible valor of the Poles who threw themselves between the enemy and the rest of Europe as the invasion took hold, and the unsurpassed courage of the Canadians who had already seen the horrors of war on this coast. They knew what awaited them there, but they would not be deterred. And once they hit Juneau Beach, they never looked back. All of these men were part of a roll call of honor with names that spoke of a pride as bright as the colors they bore. The Royal Winnipeg Rifles, Poland's 24th Lancers, the Royal Scots Fusiliers, the Screaming Eagles, the Yeomen of England's Armored Divisions, the Forces of Free France, the Coast Guard's Matchbox Fleet, and you, the American Rangers. Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? Well, what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief.
It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer, and so you and those others did not doubt your cause, and you were right not to doubt. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for, and democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man. All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you. The Americans who fought here that morning knew word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know in fact, that in Georgia, they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas, they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia, they were ringing the Liberty Bell. Something else helped the men of D-Day, their rock-hard belief that Providence would have a great hand in the events that would unfold here, that God was an ally in this great cause. And so the night before the invasion, when Colonel Wolverton asked his parachute troops to kneel with him in prayer, he told them, do not bow your heads, but look up so you can see God and ask his blessing in what we are about to do. Also that night, General Matthew Ridgway on his cot, listening in the darkness for the promise God made to Joshua, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. These are the things that impelled them. These are the things that shaped the unity of the Allies. When the war was over, there were lives to be rebuilt and governments to be returned to the people. There were nations to be reborn. Above all, there was a new peace to be assured. These were huge and daunting tasks, but the Allies summoned strength from the faith, belief, loyalty, and love of those who fell here. They rebuilt a new Europe together. There was first a great reconciliation among those who had been enemies, all of whom had suffered so greatly. The United States did its part, creating the Marshall Plan to help rebuild our allies and our former enemies. The Marshall Plan led to the Atlantic Alliance, a great alliance that serves to this day as our shield for freedom, for prosperity, and for peace. In spite of our great efforts and successes, not all that followed the end of the war was happier planned. Some liberated countries were lost. The great sadness of this loss echoes down to our own time in the streets of Warsaw, Prague, and East Berlin. The Soviet troops that came to the center of this continent did not leave when peace came. They're still there, uninvited, unwanted, unyielding, almost 40 years after the war. Because of this, Allied forces still stand on this continent. Today, as 40 years ago, our armies are here for only one purpose, to protect and defend democracy. 
The only territories we hold are memorials like this one and graveyards where our heroes rest. We in America have learned bitter lessons from two world wars. It is better to be here ready to protect the peace than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. We've learned that isolationism never was and never will be an acceptable response to tyrannical governments with an expansionist intent. But we try always to be prepared for peace, prepared to deter aggression, prepared to negotiate the reduction of arms, and yes, prepared to reach out again in the spirit of reconciliation. In truth, there is no reconciliation we would welcome more than a reconciliation with the Soviet Union, so together we can listen, lessen the risk of war now and forever. It's fitting to remember here the great losses also suffered by the Russian people during World War II. Twenty million perished, a terrible price that testifies to all the world the necessity of ending war. I tell you from my heart that we in the United States do not want war. We want to wipe from the face of the earth the terrible weapons that man now has in his hands. And I tell you, we are ready to seize that beachhead. We look for some sign from the Soviet Union that they are willing to move forward, that they share our desire and love for peace, and that they will give up the ways of conquest. There must be a changing there that will allow us to turn our hope into action. We will pray forever that someday that changing will come. But for now, particularly today, it is good and fitting to renew our commitment to each other, to our freedom, and to the alliance that protects it. We're bound today by what bound us 40 years ago, the same loyalties, traditions, and beliefs. We're bound by reality. The strength of America's allies is vital to the United States and the American security guarantee is essential to the continued freedom of Europe's democracies. We were with you then, we're with you now. Your hopes are our hopes and your destiny is our destiny. Here in this place where the West held together, let us make a vow to our dead. Let us show them by our actions that we understand what they died for. Let our actions say to them the words for which Matthew Ridgway listened, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Strengthened by their courage, heartened by their value, and borne by their memory, let us continue to stand for the ideals for which they lived and died. Thank you very much, and God bless you all. and say thank you for listening to this show. Whether you listen through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Plus, Player FM, or any other way, I just want to say thank you. Yeah. Election Day. 
and the BNP has just been elected. Pandemonium on the street, the whole country's been affected. Anybody not indigenous to these fair British owls have exacted 10 days to leave or face forced deportation. Pretty easy on that face value could tell they're not Caucasian. But what about those who perhaps never knew that they were Cotrude and Optrude and happily a part of the BNP crew? What are they to do? Well, fuck you. There's no point asking. The BNP only cares about those who can trace their ancestry right back to the Anglo-Saxons. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. A new broadcast goes out to every child, woman and man for now. They've got exactly five days to report back to the motherland. And if they're speaking an unspoken language, then they'll switch to one that you can understand. And that's one of fear, death and intimidation. The BNP wants a white-only nation. That fateful day comes and white fans are sent to every non-British household, just like the days when slaves are sold just like the days when slaves were sold. And out of these thousands upon thousands of faceless figures, we've got one mixed-race kid, his name's Tyrone. Doesn't understand why he has to leave his father behind and go back to a country that's completely unknown. He's scared, he clutches on his mother's hand. Sees an old friend of his waving the British flag in the bystand. Remembers that prick calls him about 50p, manages to get away from his mother and break free. His mother tries to call him back, she screams his name. A B&B henchman spots him, takes his gun out and takes aim. This henchman's only 17, his fingers shiver as he puts it on the trigger. His friends shout in his ear, shoot that nigger. He knows he has to, but they're the most inferior race. It's time to put those niggas in their place. To make sure that this scenario does not become a reality, everybody of all colours forget their hateful mentality. Election Day. Welcome children to the Trump Depression Hotline. Amen. Praise be. And I'm Reverend Billy. And this is uh, an advice column people send in their letters. The first letter is from Crystal in Harlem. Crystal with a K. Hi, Billy. Watching the Kavanaugh hearings and all those Republicans defending him, I found myself wondering why old, rich, white guys are so pathologically fucked up. Although Crystal put effed up. Very delicate of you, Crystal. Maybe... They're just born that way, Reverend. Any insights? Crystal, let's not blame all of society's ills on the old, rich, white guys. It does seem reasonable, though, to strip them of their $3,000 suits, their Senate seats, their guns, their pornography. No, no, no. Let's not stereotype these poor souls that they really should scream in the agony of humiliation as they kneel for hours before gigantic statues of Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford in the center of Times Square. And there is a basic common decency in the idea that, as their bank accounts are emptied, that we should begin to laugh, not with them, but at them, the laughter building until it rings up and down the New York avenues and up and down the streets. A laughing city, yes, 
free finally of Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham and Mike Crapo. Then again, am I guilty of self-loathing? I've managed to not be rich, but the white part. I have a problem there, and the guy part as well. Those two conditions do persist. The old part, well, I'm putting that off till next Tuesday. All I know is that right now, Crystal, Crystal with a K, we are in some deep shit. And we have to save each other no matter who we are. Amen. I hope that helped a little bit, Crystal. A little levity there. And now from Brian in Crown Heights. All right, Brian. Hey there, Rev. I'm planning a trip abroad next month. Whenever I go overseas, people... Whenever you go overseas, and you live in Crown Heights, I hope, I hope that you didn't contribute to the gentrification of Crown Heights, Brian. Amen, praise be, with your overseas trips. You know, and I hope that when you're gone overseas, I hope, I hope, you, don't, I hope you don't Airbnb your place. You may, you may want to, like, uh, call me on the down low and have a little confession here. Amen. Let's get back to the letter. We love, we love all of you, you know, out there, even the upper-middle-class gentrifiers, we find a, a place for you in the church. So your foreign uh, friends are asking you, uh, what's wrong with America? Why are you Americans always starting wars? Why can't you give people health care? What do you have against immigrants? Reverend, I get a lot of that kind of thing. It makes it hard to make friends. What should I tell them? Brian... Our America is with the citizens of the earth who were here first and the Africans who survived the Middle Passage. And as I write this, I feel the America of thousands on Capitol Hill. I have to say, um, I wrote this when there were thousands of us in Capitol Hill who were during the uh, Blasey Ford, uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings there were many of us in Washington, and that's who I refer to here. As I write this, I feel the America of thousands of us on Capitol Hill who, by the whole soul commitment of our protests, are bringing survivors' stories to the light of day. Brian, are you looking for friends in all the wrong places? America isn't the bankers on Wall Street or the paramilitaries that pry families apart and put children in privatized concentration camps. America is not the old white guys who pay the media to portray them as leaders of their, quote, great nation. America is two continents of love, work, and hope. It's a vast place that reaches around the planet and has received the faith of so many of us. Don't give them... Don't give America to those who betray that amazing name, which translates universally into the destination of our dreams. There are millions of people wandering today, dreaming of a home that is over there on the other side of a militarized border. And may they all reach their America, wherever it may be. Amen, and that concludes today's Trump Depression Hotline. Crystal and Brian, thank you for your thank you for your letters. 
If you have a letter from me, just write RevBilly at independent.org. As you know, that's independent with a Y. Independent.org. Ask me any question you want to. I'm here, uh, here in Brooklyn, in the very room where we record our podcast, Savitri D and I. D and I from the Church of Stop Shopping. Our hour-long podcast is called The Earth Wants You. Thank you, everyone. Change-a-lulia. gentlemen, this is St. Clinton here. I just wanted to drop in real quick to give a shout out to some of the listeners on the show. There's Poet Soul 30, Raising Vibrations, Stutter C, Creative Culture SW, Miss Taylor Ray, Noble Series, Star Fox 55, Wady British, Leslie Wood, Beatrice, Lauren 2000, Monica Renata, Rider Die, Ember Gleams Music, Music Means Life, Milk No Sugar, Ishani Jasmine, Awesome Music, Prince Raymond, Deville Stone, Patron Saints of Pop Culture, Jay White, D. Angelic Poetess, and so, so many more. If you'd like to shout, have me shout you out, just leave a tweet to Sand Dune Radio. Oh yeah, now back to the show. Your city of Houston with its manned spacecraft center, will become the heart of a large scientific and engineering community. And I am delighted that this university is playing a part in putting a man on the moon as part of a great national effort of the United States of America. Collector, I run into uh, 
very hard surface, but it appears to be very cohesive material of the, of the same sort. I'll try to get a rock in here. Airman from the planet Earth, Mike set foot upon the moon, July 1969. It came in peace for all mankind. It has the, the crew members' signatures and the signature of the President of the United States. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston, AOS, over. Yeah, radio Astronaut. Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. Uh, I believe they're setting up the flag now. Great. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes on the winter. Tranquility Base, uh, Houston. Guidance recommendation uh, is pings, and you're cleared for takeoff. Roger, understand. We're number one on the runway. Seven, six, five, work stage, engine on exit. Beautiful. Very smooth. Very quiet ride. There's that one stage on there. 1,000 feet high, 80 feet uh, per second vertical rise. Eagle Houston, uh, you're looking good at two, same guys, and this then all agree. We're going right down to US-1. Eagle Houston's going right down the track, everything's great. Horizontal velocity approaching 2,500 feet per second, 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 second. Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. That would be an honor. Go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join in recognizing what an immense feat this is. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but men of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity and a vision for the future. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. It is said that 500 million people gathered in TV sets around the world to wait for the first Earthling to set foot on the moon. Countless millions more listened on the radio.
So, it's time for us to say so long. Ciao, arrivederci. Because we're at the end of for the love of poetry and spoken word. Oh, yeah, it's over. We'll see you later. Goodbye. Ow.